This episode is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you enjoy the Coffee and Cocktails podcast, feel free to support our show by becoming a patron for as little as one pound per month. By subscribing to our show, you get early access to ad-free and bonus episodes, patron-only content, and a chance to talk with our coolest guest speakers. Speaking of patron-only content, in July, we'll be hosting our first live special episode with startup guru Brady Simpson. To learn more, follow us on LinkedIn or check out our website at coffeeandcocktailspodcast.com. Otherwise, we'd like to give a shout out to our Gold Star member, Mary M. Thanks for listening and on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 28th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. This month on our new Controversies and Contraband series, we have the pleasure of talking with our first guest speaker, Dr. Banu Karaja, who will be talking to us about her work on Nazi materials. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I was, it's a pleasure. And I'll have to say, um, could you tell us what drink you're having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself? Would sure. you like to start? Yes, I would like to say something very extravagant, but I can't. I'm actually having a fruit smoothie um, oh. because I didn't have time for lunch. And uh, this has to time me over uh, for now. And um, yeah, a little bit about myself. And I'm an anthropologist by training. I work on the politics of art. Um, and more generally, I'm interested in the governance of art. Uh, from a perspective of political anthropology. And I generally, geographically speaking, work across Germany and Turkey or the greater European, Near Eastern, Middle Eastern context. And I came to you because I'm interested in censorship and moments in which censorship occurs in the art world. And that's how we sort of got in touch when I saw your call to talk about banned materials. Yeah. So, um, you know, kind of just to give you an idea of how the series started, because I've always had this idea in my head of, you know, I think it's the, the, one of the things about podcasting is in, it's in business, they say, you know, you should focus on what your clients want. And I definitely think from a business standpoint, that's important. But I think when it comes to podcasting, you need to also think about what do you want? Because if you're not interested in it, then everybody's going to know you're not interested in it. And I had had this copy of Mein Kampf just sitting on my shelf for oh, ages. Wow. And every time people came over, I always had to sort of hide it. <laughs> so I don't want people to think that I was some like secret Nazi supporter. But I have always been interested in how texts have power and how they can sort of move people. And so when I started this series, I, I was thinking I'd, I'd do a series on maybe Mein Kampf, maybe one on Salman, the Salman Rushdie affair. And for those that are listening, if you happen to be a specialist on it or know somebody is, please contact me, um, the Gnostic Bibles. But this idea that, you know, um, material has power and that it can sort of move people. So when you reached out to me saying that you actually specialize in Nazi materials and how these historical relics and documents how they sort of have an impact on society today. I thought, oh my gosh, I have to talk to you. This is exactly the sort of thing that I want to dive into. Um, so I guess my first question for you is what led you to begin your work on studying Nazi materials in the first place? Yeah, um, it wasn't actually intended, to be honest. Um, as I said, I work on the politics of art or the governance of art. And um, when what I noticed is uh, when you work on artistic expression from the perspective of the state and how the state aims to regulate artistic expression um, or support it. Um, 
there is a sort of working principle underneath that of what we know as modern cultural policy. And that is the idea that art in principle is inherently beneficial, that it is a civilizing force. Um, sometimes that is expressed in very national terms, right? That it is important for the community that is supposedly expressed within the form of the nation state. Um, but uh, sometimes it can also take on more universal uh, formulations like that art is, you know, an expression of our common humanity. Uh, but every now and then, um, during my research, I came across artistic expressions that were seen as harmful, as eroding of the national community or context, or that were not fulfilling the civilizing mission that is often accorded to art, or that are harmful, not inherently good, but actually inherently harmful. And within Germany, most of these expressions in some shape or form, sometimes very explicitly and sometimes uh, implicitly, and I think we'll talk about an example of that, with reference back to the Nazi past. Um, yeah, perhaps it's, I should leave it at that and then sure. we get more into details. So, because um, I know in, in talking about the Nazi past, I mean, um, one of the things that I think um, those who maybe studied World War II history are familiar with is the idea that the Nazi party, and maybe you could fill us in a bit more on this, um, had, they were collectors, they were art collectors. You know, Hitler was an artist. And um, one of the things um, that you and I had talked about before recording on the show was that it's it's almost like taboo to say that that Hitler was a good artist. And it's interesting because when I when I saw his art for the first time, this was some some time ago, I I thought, oh, that's a, that's a nice. It was like I think a cathedral or something, and I thought, oh, that's a really nice, you know, water painting. And then I had read some critiques some time ago saying, oh, his art was kind of so so. I'm like, mm -hmm. well, it's a lot better than mine. And I realized that I think if you were to say he was a good anything, you know, he was a good brother, he was a good whatever there's um, sort of certain, you can't attribute something good to somebody who is inherently evil. And I think within the art context, and I know we can dive into this a bit more, um, there are still some rules in terms of what you can constitute as, as you said, inherently good or inherently not so good or politically driven and not to diverge too much, um, but seeing as, Hitler was an artist before he then became a dictator, etc. Um, I'd be curious to understand, you know, this idea of, of you know, the Nazis being art collectors, um, how that sort of um, had a political tone to it or undertaking behind it. Well, thank you so much. I mean, you asked a very evocative question. I think on the one hand, you know, um, in Germany, uh, most people would say he's a failed artist. I think that's mm. very important. In a way, he also sits squarely in the motif of the dictator artist that we know from, you know, classical figures such as Nero to uh, others. And indeed, you know, uh, Hitler being perhaps the most 
prominent quote unquote uh, of those failed artists and you know there's films about what had happened if he had actually been accepted to art really? school you know these kind of musings about would he still have wrecked that much um, pain and suffering over um, the world uh, really um, but I've always wondered about this idea that someone um, who is bad, who is morally corrupt, who is cruel, uh, that we have a problem thinking of someone like that as a good artist, you know. Uh, on the other hand, we know that many misogynists, uh, even um, men who have killed women, are internationally acclaimed artists to this day, or only, their images are only slowly being dismantled. Uh, Kenan Eren is another example from the Turkish context. He was the leader of the military junta that organized the 1980 coup d'etat in Turkey. Um, he actually also was a hobby painter and he opened an exhibition in the 1990s, which caused a lot of uproar exactly for the same reason. We tend to think, and I say this we in a very, I know, very undefined kind of way, but I, uh, but most dominant public discourses think of art as inherently good and thus also as a moral kind of vestige that should preclude people from doing bad things. I know this is quite simplified, uh, but just as a sort of idea when it comes to the person of Hitler himself, overall, the fascist movement in Germany, the National Socialist Movement, for them, aesthetics was not just a sort of um, decorative, but in many ways, um, the question of art and aesthetics lie, uh, was at the heart of the National Socialist rule. And when you say there were collectors, there were premier looters, you know, for okay. a long time, you know, when we think about it's the biggest, it was always called the biggest art theft in history or for a long time. I think if we look at the colonial long durée, of course, uh, we might sort of dispute the numbers. But what we have to keep in mind is that at least in the 20th century, it was the largest planned campaign uh, of looting art throughout Europe especially, and much of the, the invasion of Paris and occupation of Paris was completely planned alongside art to be confiscated. I mean, there were already lists out there as to which works of art uh, were to be confiscated from public collections. The same is true in the eastward expansion and a war of aggression of the Nazi regime, uh, where art that was not seen as valuable was to be destroyed whereas what was seen valuable and here i'm not talking in monetary terms but really the idea was that the possession of art itself was the expression of moral superiority interesting, interesting. so moral and so uh, political superiority so with i mean it wasn't something that was cosmetic it was at the heart of the way in which power was construed and you know um walter benjamin has in the in his essay of the um, art in the age of mechanical reproduction also talks about this difference between uh, communism and fascism as to you know how fascism uh does not in contrast to communism, doesn't aestheticize uh, um, 
so uh, sorry, does it, you know, where the aesthetic and the politic become congruent with each other, they're not separable, you know. Mm. Um, and I think this is something um, that that is something that we have to keep in mind when we think about uh, the way in which the art scene not, not Nazi art loot progressed throughout, not not just uh, within Germany, where especially Jewish collectors were subject to the confiscation and looting of art, but throughout Europe itself um, in general. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, one of the things I wanted to tap on, into is that you stated in your bio that as a liberal democracy, Germany is often thought of as a champion of free speech, which yeah. I think is something we should dive into. Yet along with the denial of the Holocaust, Nazi symbols, films, and writings lie outside of the constitutionally guaranteed what you call freedom of expression. They're either forbidden by law or their public use is subject to certain restrictions that are intimately connected to Germany's standing in the international community through what they refer to as a promise of, quote unquote, never again, as in we will never again um, do these things that we had done in the past. Could you explain uh, to us why this is the case? Yeah. So um, I think uh, it's really important to understand and this is, of course, true for other contexts as well. We can talk about the US or perhaps you can bring examples from the UK. Liberal democracies pride themselves that freedom of expression is constitutionally guaranteed. Now, interestingly, freedom of the arts is not guaranteed everywhere um, in the same way. There's only, I think, 54 countries in the world that explicitly mention art as separate, as a separate as sort of entity in their freedom of expression stipulations. Um, Germany is one of them. Um, but while uh, Germany has a vested interest in portraying itself as a democracy that after 1945 has uh, has both faced its past, it's very invested in showing that it has faced its past, and that it also has the legal and social, created the legal and social conditions and political conditions for something like uh, another war of aggression, of which there were, of course, World War One and World War Two, or the National Socialist reign can never happen again. Um, and in that way, uh, when you look closer, freedom of speech in Germany is not unfettered. It's not an unfettered right as it is, for instance, in the US. But there are certain, um, and those did not, uh, were not established right away, not after 1945, which is also something I think people tend to forget, but rose uh, really with a different kind of memory of the Holocaust from the 1980s onwards. Uh, mm. We can talk about this in a little bit more detail in a moment. So um, the there is uh, in the Penal Code of Germany uh, um, something called Article 86 that deals expressively with forbidden symbols um, the swastika would be one of those, for instance, uh, or the insignia of the SS or the SR, that is the sort of different arms of the Nazi party. Um, those are forbidden by law. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so you, you wouldn't be... 
Oh, please go ahead. So no, and I and I know we we talked about this in another discussion mm-hmm. that even vocabulary there are limitations. So as you said in the U.S., there are words that you shouldn't use, especially from depending on the background that you come from, and um, people use them. You're not going to go to jail for them, or you're not going to get a fine for them. But you. I, if I understood correctly, you had said that even vocabulary, there are restrictions. It goes beyond taboos. And that if you said Nazi in public, that there could be potentially a fine associated with that if you called somebody no. that? No, no okay. it's not, not, not that. But it's sort of, um, it, in terms of vocabulary or phrases, the denial of the Holocaust, for instance, is forbidden by law in Germany. Okay. And it's punishable with, uh, with also prison sentences, for instance. Um, notably, and again, you know, this was not something that was instated right after 1945, but was instated in the mid-80s um, at a point where there was an effort by Germany um, to gain full sovereignty in the international community. Uh, you know, to get into rearmament, uh, which it had already started a few decades before, but always very, very slowly, very cautiously, and um, you know, with um, allied military posts still existing as well, and so on. So the denial of the Holocaust was criminalized in 1985. Um, that is often also uh, regarded, I think, both from within and without Germany as another, um, not as a restriction on freedom of expression, which you could argue, you know, it is, but as a um, as a sign of its maturity mm-hmm. as a democracy. Now, this argument is a very difficult one, um, but has to do really with this very specific history of Germany uh, and where it's also seen as an acknowledgement of the responsibility towards this past and that it's not, you know, that at that point, um, 40 years later, um, that it's still important to uphold a certain way of looking at that very past. But again, uh, a closer look then reveals that the denial of the Holocaust could only pass as a law in German parliament uh, on pressure of uh, the conservative parties, the Christian Democratic um, Union, um, on uh, their pressure that the denial of the expulsion of Germans from Eastern Europe was also criminalized. So what looks at first sight as a sort of very unique way of dealing with the Nazi past then actually becomes already as the law um, a little bit more questionable because, you know, the expulsion of Germans who had lived in Eastern Germany, some of which had settled there during the Third Reich, some of which have historically longer roots within um, Eastern Europe, is of course a very difficult topic, you know, because it it um, it has been long taboo to accord victim status, taboo, so to speak. I mean, I always would caution to say it was really taboo, um, but to point to their suffering was often seen or interpreted as a um, sort of comparison to the victimhood and the suffering endured by uh, Jewish people. Mm. who had suffered in concentration camps and others who were 
victims of the war of extermination. So if I understand correctly, it's it's almost to say that um, victimhood, and I, I want to be careful how I word this, mm-hmm. but victimhood it can be attributed to those who were directly impacted, Jewish community, gay community. Um, Since it's a Roma. Those who were Roma, basically yeah. sentenced mm-hmm. to death. Mm-hmm. Um, but those who were not sentenced to death, but maybe lived in poor, you know, poor living conditions, weren't maybe as economically capable of, um, as in better economic standing as opposed to those in other parts of Germany, they might have some backlash if they claim had claimed a victim and would or wanted to have claim to victimhood. Is that correct? the ones that are well? There's two. I think there's two groups specifically. Um, so um, the one group is you know, people who lived up all the way into what uh, into today's Russia. I mean, there were German settlements mm. uh, already previously, people who had fled, for instance, religious per- uh, persecution in previous centuries. But then, of course, there were German settlers who had been settled in Eastern Europe as part of Germany's, uh, Nazi Germany's expansion. Mm. So if you are settled somewhere um, or, or, you know, they're extremely, even if they were, had been there longer, they become very privileged during Nazi times because they, you know, all of a sudden it's Germany occupying those territories. Okay. So they have benefited from Nazi rule, um, both politically and very often also materially benefited. Mm. So, you know, to accord victim status to those who then had to flee from the Russian as the Russian army was coming towards Berlin is, of course, a politically very difficult um, and also ethically very difficult sort of to navigate these questions. No, that's a good point. Um, if we could sort of step back a little bit before mm-hmm. we start diving into some of the work that you've you've done, especially mm-hmm. with your recent publication in the National Frame. Could you explain to our listeners, um, what does Nazi expressionism mean in the German context? So what does Nazi expression mean is a bit, uh, yeah. You know, there's some things that are quite easy to be detected. As I said, anything that is a direct symbol of the Nazi party, for instance, swastikas, insignia, military insignia of the Wehrmacht during the Third Reich, for instance. Those are quite easily determinable expressions, so to speak. Now, when it comes to questions of the arts, it becomes very difficult. Um, I think I had mentioned in a previous conversation, there was a very popular rock band called Rammstein. I think they're still popular. Uh, but in uh, in the early 1990s, they did a, they and you know there was always some kind of question because they use a lot of these Nazi or fascist aesthetics um, that you know your listeners might also be familiar with from um, you know visuals from Leni Riefenstahl films, those big party rallies, that kind of monumental architecture, and so on. But in that one music video that they did in the early 1990s, they used actually clips of Leni Riefenstahl's Olympic film. You know, the film she had she had made, uh, she had been commissioned to... to Could to you film. tell us a bit about mm-hmm. that film, just so, for some yeah. of the listeners who may not be aware? 
Yeah, so that uh, it's called Festa Völker in German. I think it's known in English as Olympia. Uh, and it was filmed during the Summer Olympics of 1936, where Nazi Germany wanted to show the world that, you know, despite all their policies uh, and their already very blatant anti-Semitism, you know, how not only civilized they were, but also how superior, you know, what really uh, it was an exercise and also showing their supposed purported um, political and moral superiority through sports. I mean, that was the sort of showcase they wanted to give to the world. And uh, Lin Riefenstahl, a filmmaker who had already um, had uh, connections to Adolf Hitler himself and to the Nazi party overall, she had filmed previous party rallies at Nuremberg. If you ever give into YouTube just sort of Nazi rally Nuremberg, you will find her footage. And that Where also she, ties into Triumph of the Will, correct? Exactly, exactly. Triumph we'll, of the Will is, we'll is one of those soon, films. Yeah. yeah, is one of those films. So Olympia was her her sort of uh, documentation, quote unquote. I would really use this in quotation marks. Um, because she pioneered a lot of the sort of kind of monumental perspectives. You know, she shot a lot of the, she has a lot of shoots, not just of classically beautiful muscular bodies that um, she often filmed in poses that are akin to um, classical uh, Roman or Greek um, sculptures, for instance, she used a lot of the camera frames she did, or the the, the visual frames she took, were filming um, certain figures who she wanted to be elevated from below, so they look more towering and imposing. It's sort of a visual language of Aryan supremacy. That's, well, she I did that even Hitler, hard. didn't she? She would yeah. do the filming from, you know, where he's on his podium and he's yeah. two feet tall, apparently, in reality. But he would look quite tall. Apparently, exactly. Tom Cruise, they do the same thing, but <laughs> I'd note. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say anything about that. But um, her specialty was also, um, you know, capturing masses and masses that are highly organized, you know, put in, in orderly lines and um, sort of a visual language of the monumental party grounds in Nuremberg uh, together with the with this sort of symbolism and um, of the Nazi party that was featured together with the masses. So she's really... Um, Actually, you know, it wasn't just Nazis who were interested in that kind of visuality. I understand, from what I understand, Rockefeller actually for his campaign also used uh, uh, similar visual modes. I mean, she she is a pioneer of cinema, documentary cinema in that way, in the way she framed. subjects with her camera I mean, I was very going to say female, way. not to cut you off, but, you know, female directors at that time, let alone even in today's time, is mm-hmm. phenomenal. I mean, if we were to step away from, you know, the, some of the work that she had done, mm-hmm. you would you would think that, you know, having, having a dedication to her uh, work, you know, as a pioneer within the field from a feminist perspective could be quite interesting. But I think as we'll dive into in a bit, I think mm-hmm. if there was an exhibition dedicated to her, given her association with the Nazi party, that my guess is it probably wouldn't be necessarily well-received. 
Yeah, but you know, I think it's very interesting what you say because I am from. I was very, you know, I grew, up, I grew up in Germany and was educated here, and I was always under the impression that you know we knew about Dani Riefenstahl, we had sort of dissected uh, clips of her work, and I talk a moment why, why it's only clips of her work, and to in, in terms of. Under- Understanding, gaining some visual literacy, what were sort of Nazi propaganda ways of, you know, establishing this effect, this, this sort of, you know, how were they so adept in seducing people into their political program and aesthetics was an important um, point in that. But when I first went to the US, um, first to work and then to go to graduate school, I was so struck when I heard that um, film students in the US, for instance, would watch those documentaries in class in their entirety. Mm. Um, I was quite struck that it wasn't forbidden or anything. And that, of course, with all critical readings, but that they would, from a film point of view, from a sort of cinematic point of view, critical cinematography, um, would study uh, Lini Riefenstahl. I mean, I think uh, for a long time, I don't know how it is right now in, in, in 2021, but until very recently, uh, a German film school would have abstained from that kind of curriculum. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that really ties into our next question. Um, talking about, you know, this film that she made, Triumph of the Will, you mm-hmm. had said in your book that it's not allowed to be shown in its entirety mm-hmm. in Germany without an educational context attached exactly. to it. Can you tell us in more detail about, well, we've already kind of touched into why it's controversial for obvious reasons, but why can it not be shown in its entirety? Yeah. Uh, you know, when I did some research, I didn't put everything in my book uh, at the at that time. But um, I I just thought that everything or all, all Nazi expressions were I was under the assumption were just forbidden in 1945 or soonly thereafter with the end of World War II or denazification. But from what I understand, um, or that it, they were, you know, that they were just plainly banned because they were often talked about as banned films or Mein Kampf being a banned book. But exactly because how do you ban things in a democratic state becomes Mm. a completely different question um, without appearing to be not really fulfilling the promise or the, the, the image that you're supposedly you know, it's quite far off from that enlightened society. It almost society seems like a dictatorship. Its, it's like you can only listen to this, but you can't listen to this. And it seems a bit ironic, if that's the right word. It's like, exactly, you want to be open, exactly. but we're not going to let you mm-hmm. do this stuff. But it's like, but the previous mm-hmm. partly wouldn't let us do certain things. So don't you think that maybe you're eating your own words a little bit? So how do we find that balance? Exactly. So that, and then on top of it, let's not forget during the Cold War, it was extremely important for Germany, not just the best Germany uh, itself, but for the international community to say, see, best Germany is a free country, whereas East Germany under the quote-unquote yoke of socialism is unfree. You know, everything, everyone has to tout the party line or you'll be censored, or you won't be able to work, or worse, you will be imprisoned, right? So what happened with Triumph of the Will um, is not uh, unsimilar to Mein Kampf, which we talk about perhaps um, in afterwards, is <clears throat> that had it been freely circulated, it could have been banned on the grounds, but those are 
difficult grounds of incitement of the masses because it shows an aesthetics of Aryan supremacy. Now, these are legally very hard to define things on the one hand side. So uh, on the other hand, within the German self-understanding, it's important that these laws exist. So it was uh, mainly uh, made impossible on grounds of copyright because it had been commissioned by the German Reich, by the Third Reich. And this was Triumph of the Will or Mein Kampf? Um, triumph of the Will. Okay. The, 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 there's also a copyright story to Mein Kampf, but let's uh, stick with Triumph of the Will first. And so it needed to have both permission and you would have to pay Leni Riefenstahl because she was still alive. So it had to have both the permission of the German state and her permission. And she would get royalty fees on top of it every time it was shown in Germany. So that would have been really unthinkable in many ways. Although I believe after her death, there were a couple of screenings in uh, late night German TV, but because it had an 18 plus age rating, it could only be shown after uh, 11 p.m. Um, but since then, the copyright has fallen. Since her death, the copyright has fallen to the German um, to the German state. And the German state generally doesn't allow, you have to petition, uh, you know, the, the federal archives for it to, to for, uh, for you to be able to show it. And you have to prove that you are um, uh, contextualizing it within an educational program because although this is not being said, it's said, you know, it's inciting the masses or it has anti-Semitic all of her films, by the way, that were produced in that time, or it has anti-Semitic references um, and so on. I think what is not really spoken is the idea that Nazi aesthetics, national socialist aesthetics are so seductive that decades and decades of you know, German education is not able to rein in the potential of these artistic works. And I think it's interesting your use of the word seductive because I think one of the things I I know I do in my own lessons with, you know, my teaching, et cetera, is um, you know, when we talk about controversial items, um, I think people are afraid to admit that it looks good and, you know, if we think about it from a publicity standpoint, if it looked bad, then it wouldn't have taken off necessarily if it hadn't had the hook. You know, I think that's mm -hmm. the thing to, to draw people in. And there was, you know, if you look at the context at the time, you know, Germany had lost World War One, they were in severe debt, and yet they were expected to pay off all these war debts as well to various different countries. And so they, they were in absolute destitution. You have this individual who says, you know, I can fix this, I can make this better. And, you know, people, people ate it up because they felt like there was a hope and there was a dream behind it. Um, and I think, I think that that is interesting that despite the warning labels basically attached to each of these items, it seems to me that there's a quiet recognition that um, these, these things are still attractive regardless. Mm. Yeah, and that they have a sort of mass momentum, that it is something about that it draws you in. I sometimes use seductive because, um, because I, I think it's the right it, word. Yeah, because you know? 
Yeah. Because it's striking because there's, there seems to be this idea that within the German public education system where, you know, you spend or up till now, I mean, this might be changing at some point soon or has changed in some parts of Germany. You know, it's, we don't have a unified school system here. So it's very much on a federal, uh, on a state by state basis of how they to take, teach the Nazi class. But, it, you know, as someone, as I said, born in the early 1970s, for me, it was very early on and for about five years in my schooling, we would look at the Nazi past through different lenses, through different, you know, uh, classes, be it in German class, be it in social sciences or in history. And then, you, you know, you do the same thing once over. Um, so it was a very important part of education. You know, I, I'm not talking about the quality of this education necessarily, but it was part of the school curriculum. But there is this idea that something about, especially about the aesthetic um, products or the aesthetic expression, artistic production of that time uh, makes your critical faculties collapse or endangers them, right? Mm. And that's why I very often use this, this, this phrase seductive. Well, and you have to think about it, you know, they hired the best. They hired yeah. the best to get their, their product out and it worked. Um, so, you know, I think uh, those sorts of things we have to keep in mind is that they were always looking for the best quality. And so they retrieved the results for a long time that they were looking for. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, I think that's a sort of, uh, it's very interesting that on the one hand, you know, at, at some things uh, we could perhaps say that they are the best probably, but then also think about the kind of art that was destroyed in Germany at the same time, you yeah. know, right? Yeah. The people who were exiled, theater, literature, um, visual well, art. the book burning, just the book burning book alone. Burnings, exactly. So, but they were very, let's say, effective. I mean, I mm. think the effectiveness of that kind of monumental fascist aesthetics is something that we still contend with today. You know, I mean, some... As I was preparing for, for our meeting today, um, I read again, you know, some people even, there were critics of uh, George W. Bush's uh, mission accomplished speech on um, uh, where, you know, where they were likening it to that, the kind of camera angles and the way the speech was done to that kind of uh, national socialist aesthetics. The same as true for uh, the previous president of the United States. Um, you know, it's very effective yeah. on, on, on multiple levels. Absolutely. Visually, effectively, and so on. It seems to still hold us, you know, hold, hold a sway on people. Absolutely. And that's yeah. what none of us are free from that. I think that's important. Perhaps something that's worth sort of keeping in mind that none of us are sort of who's ever been in a, in a crowd, you know, not every crowd is the same kind of crowd, of course, mm -hmm. you know, but this kind of, um, I think this has got, gotten a bit out of work, but when I was uh, growing up and going through this curriculum, sort of mass phenomena, you know, sort of how uh, the, the sort of effects of a mass on critical thinking or not thinking were always sort of at the center. But now that I think of it, it says, of, uh, it's of course, an extremely, at once very true, and on the other hand, very problematic uh, notion that masses are per se uh, open to 
this kind of abuse or use for the worse instead of the better. Absolutely. Um, so if we kind of switch and talk yeah. about mind comp a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I had thought before we talked that it was it was actually banned, like completely yeah. banned. You can't read it in Germany, you can't own a copy, mm -hmm. nothing. And you said that that is not the case um, and that its publication concerns, as you'd already mentioned previously, are issues um, due to copyright. And this led to a discussion on what it means for items to actually be, quote unquote, banned in Germany. And what does banning actually mean? Exactly. And you had said previously that uh, bans are political maneuvers that are part of Germany's rehabilitation. But these political decisions to ban Nazi materials are very complicated. So could you explain to our listeners what you mean by this? Yeah, so I think one part we've already covered. So there's Nazi materials that are very easily to be recognized, such as, mm -hmm. um, you know, Nazi symbols that they have uh, sort of uh, employed widely in different parts of the political organization. With Mein Kampf, um, I actually for the longest time in my life also thought it was banned because you could not buy it in Germany. Um, but we also know, of course, that again, you know, banning something outright does not really drive well with the idea of a liberal democracy, right? Mm -hmm. That's one thing. There's one exception to this, and that is usually uh, regulations around public decency as they pertain to the protection of minors, for instance, which I think most of us would agree are quite important. So Absolutely. those who are not protected, cannot protect themselves, are protected. But for instance, people like Marjorie Hines, who's a legal scholar and a free speech advocate, has also often pointed out restrictions that that are supposed to protect children are often used for much broader infringements but you know, on freedom of expression but that's just as an aside uh, and I think we can come up with uh, examples from popular popular culture or when it comes to LGBT uh, plus visibility for instance mm -hmm. this has been often used uh, to curtail queer expression for instance. Mm. But when we come to Mein Kampf, so, uh, so one, it's not very politically advantageous to ban something yet. And let's not forget, in Austria, you could always buy Mein Kampf right around, you know, just across the border. Uh, in all neighboring countries, I think, of Germany, you can buy Mein Kampf. I don't know where you bought your copy. Um, I think I bought mine on Amazon. On Amazon? Yeah. Oh, I mean, that that's the... That that just makes me feel icky. <laughs> I mean, I, I just but, yeah, I wanted yeah, yeah, to have a coffee is, just because I had no, this, no, of you know, but I think it was Amazon. So Yeah, yeah, no, but for me, this is sort of how hard it is to wrap your mind around if you're sort of coming from this background, right, that I come from. But in any case, so, um, but what what I learned as I was doing the research in terms of how is actually the legal situation was that um, the copyright of Mein Kampf had actually fallen to the state of Bavaria um, with Hitler's death um, because of uh, he had he, because of his estate that was still in Munich. So he maintained a residence in Munich, and and the sort of paperwork for Mein Kampf was filed there. 
So the state of Bavaria actually prohibited any kind of reproduction within Germany and uh, only allowed foreign reproductions abroad uh, for those countries or publishers that had already acquired rights to publish it prior to 1945. Wow. So um, now we can, we can sort of think or muse about what had happened had the publisher not uh, prevented the circulation of Mein Kampf. It is very probable because of the anti-Semitic expressions, the clear anti-Semitism that goes through Mein Kampf, that it would have been um, indexed, right? that it would have been banned. But in an interesting way, they never wanted to get into that. So why didn't they want to get into it? You could just as well publish it, then get it indexed, and that's it, you know, and then perhaps it's been reviewed every few years. And I think here again, it's very important that this was a sort of assurance from the German side that that sort of the, the, the non-publication, the non-publishing of Mein Kampf was seen as an assurance of, of a commitment to um, liberal democracy, right? And, and and again, as a promise to never again. And here we again have that contradiction that it is through banning certain expressions that this is sort of being upheld. Now, you know, a lot of advocates, uh, free speech advocates who deal with the larger question of hate speech and see, you know, also ask, you know, um, how does the does the criminalization of anti-Semitism by law? Um, you know, they see the same problem with that as they see with hate speech laws overall, which is, um, I think there is an understanding that speech has consequences and that speech can spill over into and legitimize action. And so very often the thought is if we use the law to criminalize certain expressions, then the state shows or the society who that, that accepts these laws shows that there's no toleration of these kind of hateful expressions of anti-Semitic expressions and so on. So it's and that's a very slippery slope, of course. So it's on the one hand very important, but on the other hand, it becomes unfortunately a slippery slope that does not always protect those it is supposed to be protecting. So it's more about the self-assurance of the German state, it seems to me, than about per se protecting Jewish populations within and without Germany. But the official narrative is, of course, that it's exactly doing that. So if I understand correctly, you know, rather than, you know, put in the proper paperwork, which you would for any publication, mm -hmm. and then give the impression that you have you as in the state or whatever, mm -hmm. has a vested interest in wanting to keep this book alive, that it's better to sort of wash your hands of it to some degree, even though it's a liberal democracy, et cetera, the last thing you want is to get stamped with this accusation that you're making an active effort to make something which is taboo um, accessible or potentially more accessible in an environment where it is very much tarnished. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, accessible, it has been always, well, not always, but it has been, well, people just used to buy it in Austria or, you know, in Holland or wherever. Or, in or Amazon. Or Amazon and then bring it back to Germany. So, you know, it wasn't never, and I think this is also important to note, it was never about complete suppression. And since the advent of the internet, that was, you know, and that's why I use this one phrase, it's sort of technically difficult and politically not necessarily wanted. You know, these kind of bans, um, you could be penalized if you had Mein Kampf at home, you know. Uh, mm. That was a different thing. Um, Neo-Nazis who had been raided by the police, active neo-Nazis um, who committed crimes, uh, you know, that it could be penalized. But um, now I lost my train of thought. But sort of what is more important about, it was less about, I think, accessibility or inaccessibility, but about legitimization versus delegitimization. I think we have to understand these laws as delegitimizing first and foremost Nazi expressions. Okay. Yeah. So rather than, so these are not complete bans. You know, when we think of censorship in the classic historical sense, it was about um, suppressing the publishing of something, uh, banning something before it meets an, an expression before it meets an audience. That's the idea of pre-clearance censorship. But what we have, I think, for quite some time now is actually that delegitimization becomes much more important than banning per se. Rather than making something inaccessible is to literally or figuratively criminalize a certain expression. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, and that's also we just sorry sorry no, to be going on too long, um, but just to say you know, and um, on the seventeenth year of Hitler's death, actually, um, Mein Kampf became part of the public domain, oh, and that was two thousand fifteen, okay. and so leading up to two thousand fifteen, there were a lot of discussions in Germany because it would be clear that anyone could just print and flood uh, the market with you know with Mein Kampf, if they so please, if they wish to do that. And what they decided on, and, and also, the, you know, I think um, periodically, there's also in the German public this idea of what would be in today's parlance, maybe called the nanny state, you know, um, that, you know, we're emancipated enough uh, to be able to read Mein Kampf without falling under this way of national socialist ideology. So there was a lot of critique already that it wasn't available periodically within different political camps. And um, so what they did is the um, uh, the uh, Institut für Zeitgeschichte in Munich published an annotated version, quite a heavy one, heavily annotated uh, critical reading version of Mein Kampf, which is now available. I have not read it, but, you know, um, mm. But it is now available, and that was a way of dealing with it. If it had come out in an annotated fashion, I think then we would have seen how those how those laws yeah. would have been what would have been put into place. It, it, it stands. I, I would think that it would have been indexed. If it and I was going like to say, that. I think the copy that I have is also annotated. I, I, it's yeah. not just 
here's the book, but there's also a write-up in the beginning of it to give you sort of a bit of background context as well. No, it's a heavily annotated edition. I don't think, if you had it, you'd know it. Mine's normal book book size, not 12 encyclopedias, but... Yeah. Um, if we could kind of just step aside for a little bit um, mm-hmm. and take this idea of banning a little bit further. Uh, in your book, you state that bans, and I'm presuming bans by the state um, or the German state for that matter, have become difficult to enforce and somewhat mm-hmm. unnecessary. And I know we've talked about that already a little bit, but that the people you have researched produced now what you call partial silencing through self-censorship. So can you um, kind of, Tell us a bit more about this. Yeah, of course. So when we say censorship today, what do we actually mean in a context like Germany? You know, in other places, it can look differently. Um, If you were to talk about Turkey, we would also talk about it differently. But generally, I would say just to to emphasize the the first part uh, of that question, um, again, you know, with the advent of the internet, with the digital availability of anything and everything, complete bans have become increasingly difficult, although we know also a lot about, you know, content management or the other side of it, uh, internet censorship, of course, is a topic for many places at different times. But when we talk about censorship today, um, outright banning is really the a minuscule part of it, you know, that someone has to recall a book and, and, and destroy a book. Uh, happens perhaps when there's um, someone's personality rights violated. You know, there was a case like that in the early 2000s, I think, in in Germany with Maxim Biller's uh, novel Estra, where uh, uh, a person who recognized herself as the main character in the book without sufficient alienation um, successfully got the book taken out of the market, which is what basically means it is banned because it was violating uh, their personality rights, you know. But, um, you know, in other instances that I've seen, so criminalization is, of course, one way banning we've talked about, but there's also something, um, a process that we know perhaps less from Germany, but other places like Turkey, for instance, targeting, you know, that that an exhibition is targeted by, let's say, a daily newspaper with the address. And then, you know, um, people come and perhaps protest, which is, of course, within the realm of free expression, but perhaps um, threaten others who want to visit an exhibition or so on. Um, Discouragement, and of course, in a context like Germany, much more important is non-funding. You know, in a place where the art world is heavily reliant on state subsidies and not just the art world, but artists' livelihood to be able to produce and show their work is very often um, predicated on state subsidy. Uh, Non-funding to sort of explicitly or implicitly be signaled that certain kind of content will not receive funding has an extremely chilling effect, you know. So would you say this partial silencing is through um, sort of the quiet um, removal of funds potentially by the state or 
um, maybe peer pressure from others to mm -hmm. prevent people from going through with their projects? Yeah, I think peer pressure from others always plays a role. Um, but I think it's the non-awarding of funding. Within recent German history, um, and it's actually a case that I talk about uh, the, in the book that you... And we'll get into um, that as well. Yeah, uh, the, the sort of explicit withdrawal of funding is something that we publicly know of, only like one case that we can talk about in more detail but it's sort of not receiving funding at all you know um sort of being rejected over and over again uh, by a committee who who's not um obliged to tell you why your proposal has been rejected right very often it's said that in germany um you know arts funding is likewise free and that it's avoided by committees of experts but the thing is that we must not forget that these committees are also the way in which these committees are configured is not necessarily um subject to public knowledge it can be it cannot be um that's that's one thing, and I think that's been historically for some time an issue. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion within the freedom of the arts uh, sort of field if non-funding non should be seen as a censoring motion because, you know, mm. non-funding does not necessarily preclude you from doing a certain kind of artistic work. But again, in an art world where, uh, like Germany, where so much is hinges upon funding by the state, to get a sense, you know, however tacitly, that certain things will not be funded, is a very strong discouragement. Whereas in Turkey, where you have very little arts funding, you know, that means monies that you would get to, to realize a project, people are very often confronted with censorship after the fact, after they've opened an exhibition, after they put on a play, you know, because they do it out of pocket or they put together crowdsourcing, crowdfunding or whatever other means they might have. Yeah. Yeah. So then funding preferences are at an important sort of are the point of governing the arts then things become much harder to discern as you know in contrast to let's say i open an exhibition about a topic and then the next day the police raids it i mean that's very clear right 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 yeah well um if we could just sort of provide an example of this idea of you know silencing by the state yeah. or self-censorship when I was looking through your research, there was an expression that came to mind, um, which I'm sure you've heard of is no good deed shall ever go unpunished. <laughs> and in your research, you discuss an artistic exhibition called uh, Regarding Terror that went terribly wrong and was heavily criticized by the German press and by German society. Can you tell us firstly how this exhibition came about, when it was, and then why it became so controversial? Yeah, of course. And, you know, and perhaps surprisingly or perhaps unsurprisingly, um, it will also lead us back to the Nazi past. Uh, Regarding Terror was an exhibition that opened, it did actually open its doors in uh, 2005, but it had a long and difficult journey. Um, it took as its topic 
the media perception of the Red Army faction. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Red Army faction from the German context, it was a militant uh, left group, armed group, um, that assembled in the late 60s, early 70s from disillusioned splinters of the German students, socialist student movements, and other left leaning and revolutionary movements. And in the beginning, it attacked sort of symbols of capitalism or militarism and in time also turned against attacks of leading uh, industry figures, capital, who were to express both um, the capitalist imperialist system and as a specifically German inflection of that, you know, we have different groups, Brigade Rosso in Italy uh, or the, the underground in the US, for instance, with whom they're often discussed in conjuncture, even though they have very particular, also particular national uh, issues that they're dealing with each of them, although they saw themselves very much in the anti-imperialist anti and internationalist tradition. But in the case of the Red Army faction, uh, part of their targets was also uh, the Nazi connections, those who had been functionaries in the Nazi party, who had uh, directly or indirectly, many of them directly, I have to say, profited from the Nazi reign of terror, from uh, genocide and from the uh, dispossession of um, Jews within Germany and within the wider European context, and who had who had been passed by by denazification, and were actually in high positions within the new German within West Germany. So it was a very difficult, I think, episode within um, Germany. The the violence that they perpetrated uh, first against buildings and then against these persons uh, who for them um, symbolize the continuity to the Nazi state uh, and to fascism. It was very, was a, I think like all of these kind of domestic militant uh, movements, are hard to deal with politically, um, but for Germany, especially because, as I say in the book, um, German terror was sort of something inconceivable, you know, that Germans would take again to weapons to kill civilians uh, was unthinkable in in the sort of Federal Republic of Germany, in this, yeah. in this beacon of liberal democracy, you know, in this liberated, emancipated, um maturing democracy you know? yeah yeah and so um and without you know um in any way um minimizing the violence that was perpetrated by the red army faction the, the the very existence of the red army faction itself really was a was a dilemma for the german state um and to have, but notably, you know, the RAF, most, many of its members uh, were either killed or killed themselves, were incarcerated. Some of them had fled uh, into what was then still the Eastern Bloc. 
and disbanded uh, sometime in the early 1990s. Mm. Uh, but it's it's been an episode that has been largely silenced. And it's very interesting. There's no memory regime. You know, Germany, which is sort of the, the champion of social political memory, you know, with all its public commemoration of the atrocities of World War II, um, has no memory regime when it comes to the to the history of German militancy. And that has... Yeah, I was say, do you think there was an attempt to sort of sweep it under the rug, you know, I to think, protect yeah. their sort of reputation? Yeah, I think there was uh, exactly that. It was sort of seen like a deviation from an otherwise, you know, progressive linear path. But the reasons for why it's been silenced is important to understand why then censorship becomes even acceptable again, within a liberal democracy. I'm using this term not because I'm invested in it, but because it's sort of the term that is being used in the self-assuring way. Uh, you know, and Germany has periodically had to both assure itself and the international community that they're not wearing off that path. You know, a reunified Germany, for instance, had to, you know, over and over perform the assurance of being this liberal democracy where... Uh, fascism would not be able to hold, uh, take hold ever again. Right. And something like the Red Army faction really brought this whole uh, historically and to this day uh, really, uh, really um, shakes the fundam sort of the the, 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 the the sort of fundamental assumptions that Germany has about itself. A, because it was a kind of violence that was seen as impossible within the new Germany. Uh, B, and I think we must not forget that, is that in answer to this terrorism, as it was then also called, Germany enacted a ton of laws, a string of laws, which we now know very are very much similar to what the Patriot Act did or some of the UK laws and in the quote-unquote counter-terrorism that are very hard to align or, or sort of reconcile with uh, each of these countries' countries' constitutions in a way, right? But they are the very exact opposite of what a democracy should look like, the kind of surveillance that is being done, the kind of, right. you know, sorry. Well, could you tell us a bit about mm -hmm. this exhibition? Because... Um, oh, yes, of course. Sorry, yeah, I'm wearing so, off too much. It's okay. But I just want to say that these topics all sort of came up, of course, you know, sort of, let me just say these two things, and then I come to the exhibition itself. So why was the Red Army faction, the, the history of the Red Army faction silenced? Why didn't didn't have a stable memory regime? And I think two things I want to highlight here, we could say more, but one is because... However misguided the violence of the Red Army faction uh, was, it insisted on disrupting the idea that Germany had re had been re-civilized after 1945, that denazification had actually happened, that uh, this Western Germany was a distinct state from its previous Nazi incarnation, right? That's one thing. And the other thing is that, you know, some of the surveillance measures I mentioned, but also the, 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 the way in which these people were incarcerated when they were incarcerated, the kind of solitary confinement protocols, force feeding when they were on hunger strike, um, not being able to see their lawyers. All of these are actually constitutionally guaranteed rights, but also not 
just from the German constitution, but also uh, to be free from this kind of harm, but also all international agreements that Germany is part of. And Germany undermined all of these protocols uh, in the 70s and 80s, right? So, mm. and the, I think these are two reasons And you why. tie this into like yeah. a Guantanamo Bay sort of comparison. Exactly, right. yeah. And we, I mean, we forgot about a lot of this. And then it came up again when uh, the global war on terror began and countries have sort of even furthered these um, these kind of uh, laws under the under the heading of counterterrorism um, that are not really that uh, that are contradict uh, all other kinds of human rights laws and national laws. The exhibition was really about a reckoning. So the the idea of uh, it was. Uh, planned by a team at KW and Blumstein, Felix Enslin, Klaus Biesenbach, very, um, they asked Klaus Biesenbach to come on, KW in Berlin, one of its premier uh, contemporary art spaces. They thought very hard about the project and how to, you know, and they were sort of in part concerned, I don't want to, you know, shorten their, their sort of rationale for the exhibition too much, but well, I had a chance to talk to one of the curators and Ellen Blumstein said, you know, it's so interesting that we talk so much about the past in Germany, but in a way the past stops in 1945, perhaps in 1960, you know, and after that we don't learn anything about German history. And, and for those of us who are born in the 70s, the Red Army faction was something that we saw, you know, whenever you would go to the post office or any public spa space, you would see the wanted posters of the protagonists of these movements. I mean, we grew up with the images of these people. So, you know, maybe it's time to revisit that that period of both left and militancy and the, the violence of the state of that time. And how could we do this? And um, notably, you know, they, they wrote a concept note and they got funding, uh, federal funding for this exhibition. But before a finalized, um, so and the idea was to have, you know, artworks that deal with that period and have um, historical documentation with it, um, newspaper clippings of the time, video material, TV materials, and so on. Um, some of these artworks were um, produced contemporaneously with the Red Army at the time of the activities of the Red Army faction. And some of them were retrospective looks at that time, um, which sometimes in Germany is called the Bleierne Zeit, the, the time of lead, you know, that went very sort of heavily um, in different phases of this, um, yeah, of this sort of struggle between state and this militant group. Um, but a preliminary concept was leaked apparently to uh, a widow of one of the victims of the RAF, a very high standing um, functionary in the German industries and later the German state. And she was able, together with other families of those who had, whose, whose loved ones had been victims of the RAF, to mobilize the state apparatus to uh, 
A, scandalize in the media against the exhibition and B, do something what we at least officially don't know. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. But to officially for all of us to see for the German Federal um, Arts Funding uh, or the agency who, who allotted that funding to say, uh, we give you the, they had already spent part of the money in, in preparation of the exhibition, but to say, you know, uh, for you to get the rest of the monies that have been promised to you, you must allow the Bundeszentrale for Politische Bildung, Bildung, which is an educational arm of the Ministry of the Interior, to run the educational program alongside the exhibition. So that is an infringement on the art world that is very heavy handed, you know, to say that, you know, I'm not saying the Bundeszentrale for Politische Bildung has you know, in part, very wonderful works uh, by great authors and there's great educators and pedagogues there. And, and you know, uh, that's a different story. But let's not forget, it's part of, it's under the patronage of the German Minister of Ministry of the Interior. So that's an interference into art or an arts institution that is really not acceptable. Mine. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sorry to be going on so no, long. No, no, I think, I mean, I think that's the thing when, when we talk about something that is so controversial, there's no easy answer. And I think also as well, when we talk about things that are, can very easily upset large groups of people for good reason, there needs to be, as you put it, an index. They're almost like a very, um, explicit caveat to say, um, I need to give you the background first before I answer the question, because I the last thing I need is for the person on the receiving end to make conclusions that don't need to be made. And also to demonstrate on your side, you've done your homework and you're looking at it from a variety of angles. Yeah, and I think what is also important to me is to say that censorship these days tends to not work in a very straightforward fashion. It takes many actors and very often it's each actor's perhaps very minuscule kind of intervention that then adds up to a censorship motion, as I would call it, you know, or to the act of censorship usually consists of, it's very rarely, you know, that is the kind of, I sort of imagine a Chaplin-esque dictator making a phone call and say, this is, you know, this is forbidden. Not that it doesn't exist in our exist in our world today. Of course it does, but I think especially when it comes to aesthetic expressions and art, it's very often you know this person calls that person. That person says, "Well, don't you think?" You know, I, I, it's much less this kind of because it's not really accepted to censor because we are so invested in 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 this idea that a place like germany is a is a free country um censorship rarely happens by decree mm. you know so it takes a lot of different actors and a lot of different sort of players to come together in something where you know, the intention might be really to uh, to um, discourage an exhibition or to close it down. It might be their intention, but the intention might also just be like, oh, something's wrong here, or we need to do something, or, you know, I don't think this this is okay. Or I'm not saying that that necessarily leads to censorship, but very often when you break it down and when we talk about the different actors who are engaged in 
who make the, you know, that in the end something can be banned today, you know, not like 250 years ago or something or 300 years ago. It takes a lot of people to make that work and a lot of, not just in terms of mass, but it takes a lot of different kind of powers. And it seems like there's a lot of stopping and starting as well. Yeah. You know, you can't just proceed with a with an idea and then assume that you can kind of get through it to the other end. But there's a lot of red tape that you're going to have to go through and a lot of apprehension on mm-hmm. the receiving end as to whether or not this could blow up. You know, and again, yeah. that whole no good deed shall ever go unpunished, even if yeah. you're going at it from the standpoint of I just want to have a civil discussion about it could end up turning into something where, you know, a civil discussion is just never going to happen. So, and I think that kind of ties into um, one of the last questions I'd like to ask is that it seems to me that the German narrative based on the discussion that we've had today uh, runs the risk of limiting civilians from having what we've talked about as freedom of expression, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. By only accepting certain, and I put this in quotations and I want to be careful about this, but by accepting certain positive points of view to be permitted in society as opposed to others, do you think this could create potential barriers for civil discussion on differing points of view? And if we could follow that up as people, how do we as people respect the past and the history that has happened while also providing openings for future alternative differing points of view and discussions. And is that even possible? Yeah. You know, I think we're, um, as, as you're well aware, and I think probably has also motivated some of your interest in this topic and this series that you're doing on banned sort of things, banned books or banned expressions. You know, there's a lot of talk and I do, I'm just sort of want to mark it. I don't want to get into it. And why I'm not getting into it will become clear when I talk a little bit about how I think of freedom of expression, perhaps. You know, but when we see um, how much talk there is today about cancel culture and who it's leveraged by, who who sort of leverages this accusation against whom, where there's a very interesting notion that it, one has never been as unfree. This is true, I think, for the UK context. I've heard this a lot in the US. I've heard this a lot in Germany, interestingly, as well. Um, so there is freedom of expression has moved, I think, explicitly into a sort of, it's a, at the moment, although I don't like this, um, militaristic language, but it's a battlefield. But let's remember why freedom of expression, why we have something like freedom of expression laws. These were instated or in their modern, in their contemporary configuration, let's say, I don't want to give a historical overview, but we usually think of them as protected speech by those who are politically and socially not as protected, who are more vulnerable for those who are minoritized in society. Right? Mm. So it is um, exactly the tyranny to, to avert the tyranny of the masses. Now we know today that these are not objective terms. Uh, we know that sometimes the very laws that are supposed to, for instance, protect people from hate speech, 
supposedly vulnerable people from to protect vulnerable people from hate speech are used by those in power to shield themselves from criticism yeah and to say oh no you know this little group of students is actually perpetrating hate speech against me you know or this group of feminists is actually targeting me or something right um, where there's an inversion of the power position within history. And I've come to think about, you know, and, and we have to be clear about what the law can and cannot do. You know, very often we think of, and I have been part of legal activism initiatives where we try to uh, make, to legally cement freedom of the arts, for instance. But the law itself is also not objective. So it also doesn't give protection just by virtue of being law. Mm. Uh, the way in which these laws are being used, and again, those who are more sort of who are sort of subaltern groups are much less able to use these laws for their own protection than are people who are part of the majority, not numerically necessarily, but in terms of power. So I've come to see increasingly the question of freedom of expression not as a freedom of expression not as a determinable endpoint. Right? I don't think there's there's X, and that is the point of freedom of expression. But it's really a terrain of struggle, of active struggle, uh, where we have to debate speech and expression in terms of power, place, and history. And when we say we want to struggle for freedom of expression, it means that we struggle to create the conditions in which we can have these discussions without making those who are vulnerable more vulnerable, without giving those in power more power, but to create sort of, I know this sounds perhaps slightly esoteric, but to create these kind of equitable and equal ways of discussing rather than thinking of freedom of speech as something that's out there if I can do X, you know? Right. I know, and I just, the last disclaimer, but I also don't mean this to be, you know, I know that even this description that I just gave can be used to make those who are vulnerable, to make those who are minoritized even more vulnerable, minoritized, or even sort of um, perpetrate violence, further violence on them. Yeah. But it's the, at the moment, this is sort of my working definition. You know, how can we really create the, 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 the conditions in which there is indeed even the possibility to talk about what free speech is? Because I think we're way, way, way away from that point that we can even talk about it. That's really, really interesting. Well, before we go, can you give our listeners a teaser of what you'll be talking about in our bonus episode, which will be available to our patrons um, later this month? Yes, of course. Uh, with pleasure. So you've kindly invited me uh, for a, a bonus episode, and I'd like to talk um, to you about my book, The National Frame. Oh, you mean this one? Violence. This one I have right here in my hands? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Oh. I don't know if anyone on Patreon can see, but yeah, it's right here. Uh, Very exactly. interesting, by the way. Art and state violence in Turkey and Germany. And that is sort of a deeper dive into um, how and why, even in this globalized world and in this globalized art world, uh, 
the production, the circulation and the presentation of art still remain refracted through the vocabulary of the national and the national print. Excellent. I have to say, thank you so much. And that's it from us from uh, Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. Again, I'd like to thank Banu for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional links to today's topic will be available in the show notes. And if you have any thoughts on today's show, any at all, feel free to leave a comment or write us directly. We love hearing from you. In the meantime, we'd like to showcase our monthly CNC winner where we pick out of a hat a Coffee and Cocktails follower from our social media platforms to win a piece of merchandise. And the winner this month is Nikki Makovicki. Please feel free to reach out to us to get your prize. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.